Hello, and welcome back to the TTM Academy podcast series. I am your host and medical director of the TTM Academy program, Dr. Benjamin Abella. I'm a physician at the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm glad to bring you this TTM Academy series that is devoted to clinicians and the use of targeted temperature management after cardiac arrest and other critical illnesses. You can find out more about the TTM Academy and our set of programs and resources at www.penttm.com, where you will find links to our podcast, but also a online CME, CME educational course, resources such as guidelines and infographics, as well as uh, links to our free uh, other materials, um, including a Twitter feed, as well as uh, workshops that we'll be doing around the country. Now, today we will be giving you uh, podcast number 18 in the series of TTM Academy podcasts. And those of you who have listened for other podcasts in our series know that our goal is to bring you information from recent publications or from discussions with experts that all pertain to the use of targeted temperature management or how to manage patients during and after cardiac arrest. And this podcast is no different. Today we will be discussing survivorship, a very important topic in cardiac arrest and post-arrest care that really has gotten um, less attention perhaps than it should have. Uh, I think this is for a number of reasons. One, because in decades gone by, we had fewer survivors. So issues around long-term survivorship of cardiac arrest were perhaps less relevant. So in a way, even talking about cardiac arrest survivorship is a note of progress, that we now have many more survivors, and we need to understand them, understand their needs, and understand how to help them so that in essence, a post-arrest care program to be a high-quality program will take these factors into account. Now, the impetus for this podcast was a recent publication, a guidelines uh, statement um, put out by the American Heart Association, I should say a scientific statement. The lead author is uh, Dr. Kelly Sawyer at University of Pittsburgh, and a long list of co-authors, and I should highlight one of her uh, co-authors especially, uh, Michael Kurz, who was very involved in the crafting of this work. It's an American Heart Association scientific statement published in 2020, so it's fairly uh, fresh off the press, and it's entitled Sudden Cardiac Arrest Survivorship. And the goal of this work started with the recognition that we have many more survivors. Many more people are leaving the hospital after cardiac arrest. And it has been anecdotally noted by many of us, including the leadership of the author group here, that while we send people home walking and talking with a cerebral performance category of one or two, and we say to ourselves, great job, you know, we had a big win today, it's not so simple. And we've anecdotally noted that many of these patients who go home supposedly with a quote-unquote good neurologic outcome, they may not feel like they're doing so good. Uh, they often have long-term problems getting back to work. They have issues of depression. They have issues of cognitive insufficiency, meaning they couldn't do the things they used to do cognitively beforehand. Some of them have coordination problems. So there's this whole range of issues that pertain to survivors, not to mention their medical issues such as maintenance and management of an ICD if patients received an internal cardiac defibrillator. There's issues of returning to family life and marital or other romantic relationships. So there's a lot that goes into what it is to be a cardiac arrest survivor. And the American Heart Association and this authorship group tried to catalog a number of the work that had been done around survivorship, and also, most importantly, I think, to highlight some of the key gaps, some of the areas we need to focus on to improve our understanding and care of these patients. So we're going to be talking about this scientific statement, as well as a 
work that came before it, a uh, original research work published in 2018 um, by a group out of Scandinavia. Uh, this is a work published in um, circulation, and the lead author is Gisela Lilja, L-I-L-J-A is the last name. I apologize for any mispronunciations. And this is an article which you can find the link to it in our show notes at pentitm.com's podcast series. The paper is entitled Return to Work and Participation in Society After Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest. And this work, uh, I think, was a very important one if you're interested in topics of post-arrest survival and survivorship, in that it looked at several hundred patients longitudinally and assessed their return to work and assessed their symptoms in a very uh, rigorous and granular fashion. So those are the two major papers we're going to be discussing today. Now, to begin this discussion, I just wanted to include some of uh, the context from our experience. We have been caring for patients after cardiac arrest for a number of years at the University of Pennsylvania, and we've had many survivors. But I'll tell you that we have also noted that many of our survivors have trouble going back to work, have trouble with relationships, have cognitive issues, and so forth. And, and I would just tell one anecdote, and of course I won't be sharing any names, but uh, I recently met with one of our survivors who did very well, and we were very pleased with his uh, returning to work and returning to friendships. However, he wanted to meet with me. Why? Because he had an ICD implanted, and it had gone off once or twice in the last year, it had saved his life, it had worked perfectly, and he'd seen his cardiologist. So at one level, one might say, great, that's why you had the ICD, you're doing fine, right? Well, the reason he wanted to meet with me was he says, it's hard to live like this. It's hard to live with the anxiety and the stress, knowing that at any time, this thing could go off, that I could go into a cardiac arrest and receive this huge jolt in the middle of my chest. And you know, that was a really humbling experience for me as a clinician and a cardiac arrest scholar for so many years, because I wouldn't have thought of that necessarily, that anxiety of having an ICD that could go off any time in your chest could become overwhelming. And he said it was hard to go to work. It was hard to sleep at night because he didn't know if it would go off while he was asleep like a terrible nightmare. So this is just one example of many I could give about how survivorship is not as simple as some of us might have thought. Uh, there are a lot of issues to talk about. And so we're going to start our actually with the original research and then end up with the guideline statement. So I want to talk a little bit about this work out of Scandinavia, the Elijah paper, which talks about returning to work. Now, in this study, they had 287 out-of-hospital cardiac arrest survivors. These were all patients in the trial known as the TTM trial, or Targeted Temperature Management Trial, that had been conducted by an overlapping group of authors a few years previously in a number of the same centers uh, from which the authors uh, work. So these were all uh, patients enrolled in a trial where they got targeted temperature management at either 33 or 36 degrees. And in this study, there was a fairly high survival rate. In general, patients did fairly well. And as part of the trial, all patients were followed up with at six months uh, in the trial to assess their outcomes for the primary uh, outcomes of the trial. For this sub-study, they also underwent a whole battery of functional testing and psychologic testing and so forth. And fundamentally, the results of the study were as follows. On the one hand, and this is shown in table one of the study, most of the patients in this uh, follow-up uh, ancillary study, quote-unquote, did well. That is to say, over 80% of all these patients were CPC1, um, and if you included CPC1 and 2, easily over 85 to 90 
90% of patients were CPC1 or 2. And those of you who follow the cardiac arrest literature would know that CPC1 or 2, or cerebral performance category 1 or 2, is considered good survival in any of the trials uh, that dichotomize outcomes to good or bad survival. So on the one hand, in table one, we think, wow, these patients are doing well. And I'll also just tell you briefly, this is a fairly typical cardiac arrest population. Uh, mean age was in the 60s, which is typical. Uh, there was a predominance of males in, the, in this uh, cohort. And these patients had fairly typical arrests. Uh, the majority of arrests were at home. Uh, bystander CPR was provided in a large number of these patients. Some patients got defibrillation. So in general, this isn't an unusual uh, cardiac arrest population. So we can infer from this uh, what might apply in many of our environments. And what they then went on to do is look at return to work. And they found that although these patients were CPC1 predominantly, return to work at six months was dramatically lower than one might have expected. And this is six months, not one or two or three months. Now, they were smart about this. The authors included control patients, patients who had STEMI, but a big heart attack. Um, and they found that return to work was less in the cardiac rest cohort. And then they also looked at a number of um, performance measures, um, both adjustment and uh, return to functionality. And they found that much like prior studies, but I think the study showed it better than many, well over half of the patients had moderate or significant deficits in psychological adjustment in other um, axes of, of survivorship. And when they looked at what was associated with failure to return to work, what aspects of these psychologic batteries suggested a problem with return to work, they found a strong association with depression. That is, patients who were depressed often had much lower return to work, all things being equal, than non-depressed patients. And similarly, they found that fatigue was a major problem in cardiac arrest patients and, again, was independently strongly associated with failure to return to work. Now, I don't know about you, but I've rarely thought about fatigue as a major long-term symptom in cardiac arrest survivors, but clearly I'm at fault. I should have. I will tell you that in their study, they found that 69% of their survivorship cohort had significant problems with fatigue. So clearly there's something about having cardiac arrest and being hospitalized for a long period of time where fatigue is prominent. And also depression was present in 13% of patients um, using a uh, instrument known as the HADS uh, survey uh, tool. In addition, almost half of the patients in their cohort had cognitive impairments. And this is something that we found in our cohort to be really uh, significant. When I say our cohort, our survivors at Penn, many people may be CPC1, but we meet with them later and say, you know, doc, I was a lawyer before my arrest and I, I can't return to work because I can't remember names as well. I'm leaving post-it notes all over the place. Or in a deposition, I can't think as quickly and I can't uh, think of my next question in an appropriate time scale to keep doing my job. So one could easily see that quote-unquote subtle cognitive deficits might loom large for these patients. Now, you might wonder why any of this would matter. You know, what can we do about it? Well, in fact, there's a lot we can do about it. Uh, certainly, depression needs to be recognized because there's excellent uh, therapeutic options, both medications and counseling and psychiatry follow-up and so forth. But also, cognitive impairment actually needs to be recognized and characterized. Why? Because we have occupational therapists who can work with these patients. Also, it's important just for patients to understand what their impairments are so they don't get as frustrated, so they can understand what they can do well 
and what they can't do well. Because I think a lot of the problems come about when if you don't understand your impairments, uh, you suddenly are basically banging your head against the wall trying to do what you did before the arrest. So fatigue is a big problem. Cognitive impairments are a big problem. Depression is a big problem. So that's the fundamental results from this paper, but I encourage you to read it. It's one of the better papers, I think, on long-term outcomes um, after cardiac arrest with regard to some of these supposedly subtle uh, deficits. By subtle, I mean unrecognized deficits. So that was really one of the fundamental works, among others, that was the impetus for the survivorship statement for why the American Heart Association put together a group to evaluate outcomes and survivorship to figure out what are the problems patients have after cardiac arrest and what are we going to do about it. And in this survivorship work, they catalog a number of the deficits that are found to be commonly reported in studies and commonly found when patients are discussed. So for example, in Table 3, there's a catalog of the cognitive impairments. And, and these range, as you might imagine, in a number of different um, functional axes. There's problems of attention, problems of memory, uh, problems of executive function. Uh, then there's language problems. So th these come in all sorts of different examples. Now again, some of these things have a therapy. Some of these things have ways that they can be managed. So it's not just about uh, seeing them, but being able to, to manage them. So for example, cognitive behavioral therapy can sometimes be helpful in certain things. Um, memory aids, um, knowing what kind of memory aids work for certain patients can be important for memory and attention problems. Um, also, uh, enlisting help having caregivers involved so that people uh, know what to do. In some cases, getting a speech-language pathologist involved can be very important if there's problems of language or sometimes problems of perception or visual-spatial problems. So there are things that can be done. And I think, and it is the opinion actually of the authorship group as well, that we are not doing enough of these things for patients after cardiac arrest. Now, I had mentioned early on that uh, psychologic problems were common as well, and indeed in this survivorship paper, this is discussed. So uh, issues of anxiety, depression, PTSD, quality of life, these are all important axes that we need to consider. And there are important tools that can be used to assess for these things. So these things are not necessarily impossible to discover or Characterized. So, for example, for anxiety and depression, there's this uh, instrument known as the HADS uh, inventory. There's others as well, like the Beck inventory. For PTSD, there's uh, well-described tools such as the SPAN and SPRINT tools, and they're described briefly um, in the survivorship paper. And then quality of life, which is, of course, really essential and important. There's instruments such as the SF36, SF12, HUI3. These are well-known tools that can help providers characterize patients and their well-being. Now, if you're listening to this and you're an ICU provider, you might think, oh my god, I, I, I can't learn all these tools, I'm not going to apply them. That may be true, but also as an ICU provider, you know that follow-up from critical illness in general is becoming a very hot topic, an important topic, so not just survivorship from cardiac arrest. And so I think to provide really high-quality ICU care, it's important to have linkages, linkages to psychologists linkages to neuropsychologists and speech pathologists and psychiatrists for follow-up. This isn't the sort of thing that you're going to be doing this at the bedside in the ICU, but you need to be able to direct these patients in the right way. It's probably not enough, it's certainly not enough, for us to just say follow-up with your internist, because most regular primary care docs or internal medicine physicians 
really, I think, also under-recognize some of these problems and are really not well-equipped in, in all fairness to, to provide a lot of these survey tools and assessment tools um, in the clinic. So these are really specialized areas. And so what the survivorship paper goes on to do is then talk about some of the things that are knowledge gaps, some of the things that we really need to work on better. So as described just now, certainly one of the things we need to work on better is just developing systems, developing linkages, developing programs for post-cardiac arrest follow-up. And in my experience, there are very few institutions that have a post-cardiac arrest follow-up clinic. Um, I think that clinic wouldn't be well populated in many places, so it'd be hard to justify financially. But we're uh, starting to do this more and more, and, and I think the place to do this is in uh, clinics that do neurologic follow-ups, neurologic injury, brain injury, because a lot of the issues, of course, are related to the brain. So this can be done, and I think these patients need more comprehensive follow-up. So, so that's one thing that just needs to be done operationally. But what are some of the questions that remain? Well, the survivorship statement goes through a number of these. And one of them is, we don't really understand yet what are the things that we can do in the hospital, what we can do in the ICU or on the wards after ICU care that can change the trajectory, that can reduce or prevent some of these problems. So that would be big. If we knew there were certain medications we could give early on, or if an occupational therapist seeing a patient before discharge really made a big difference, these things need to be studied and understand better. Also, one of the Things that happens in the ICU that is common after cardiac arrest are seizures and myoclonic activity. Uh, this is a topic of great discussion, of course, in post-cardiac arrest care in the ICU. And one of the key questions is whether treating or managing these seizure activities would affect long-term outcome. We don't know that. But what if, for example, some of these long-term cognitive disabilities are impacted by increased myoclonic or epileptic form uh, activity during the ICU care. That would be worth knowing as well. I think also on a more general level, one of the things the survivorship statement correctly points out is we haven't thought enough about support networks and survivor groups. So um, I don't know about many of you as listeners, uh, but we try to network our survivors. So when people uh, leave our care in the hospital, if they feel they need the help, and most of them do, we sometimes will put them in touch with some of our survivors who have volunteered to be uh, a referral, to be a network. Um, because survivors are a unique population with unique needs and, and they need to share amongst each other. And, and so we need to understand how to do this better. There are national groups that try to do this. There's an organization called the Sudden Cardiac Arrest Foundation. I encourage you to look it up, SCAF. And they have a number of survivors who they work with, and they have informational resources for survivors on their website. Uh, but of course, like most groups, um, we're all sort of underfunded in this sort of work. And, and so we need to figure out better ways to do this through either social media or, uh, or ways that have more legs that could be more widespread, more generalizable. Now, another set of questions that the survivorship group believes we really need to focus on and think about is what are the barriers here? Um, what are the barriers to patient and caregiver engagement in either research or advocacy and also just in follow-up more generally? Is it that they just don't know? Is it that health insurance won't cover some of these tests? Are the barriers to getting involved in advocacy that they have PTSD and they don't really want to relive any of this and, and they don't 
want to be helpful, not because they aren't helpful people, but because they're limited functionally by important psychologic um, issues there. So, so we need to understand that better, because if we can address those and we can bring more and more survivors into the fold, uh, we can really start building up this network of people to help care for each other and improve our understanding of post-arrest survivorship. So I think with that, I'll close. And, and again, I encourage you to check out the survivorship um, paper by Dr. Soy and others. It's, it's available on the circulation webpage from the American Heart Association. I think this is going to be a very important topic moving forward. And I know for a fact that the European Resuscitation Council um, meeting in Manchester in October is going to have content around survivorship. And the Resuscitation Science Symposium meeting in Dallas in November, which I'm a co-chair of along with Dr. Michael Danino will also feature information and content around survivorship. And, and this is important because we really need to put our heads together to get survivors engaged and to get our follow-up clinics engaged to provide better care. It's not going to be enough in decades hence to provide excellent targeted temperature management, cardiac catheterization, and other acute interventions without then providing the long-term monitoring and long-term care that's required so that we can provide for excellent long-term quality of life for our patients. So thank you for listening. Uh, once again, my name is Dr. Benjamin Abella, and you've been listening to this, the 18th podcast in the TTM Academy series. I encourage you to check out our website where we have other content, and I welcome you back uh, for our next iteration, podcast 19, which will be coming in several weeks. Thank you very much. Thank you.